Good morning, Christ Prez. One of my favorite things about this time of year is the music, the singing, the Christmas carols, and partly for sentimental and nostalgic reasons, but also a lot of the Advent and Christmas hymns are actually filled with some of the best theology there is. Not all of them. Away in the Manger includes that heretical line about the baby Jesus not crying, but a lot of the hymns are filled with really good theology. Our passage this morning includes what is actually the first Christmas carol. Verse 46 tells us that Mary said, but it's obvious from the poetry of what follows that she didn't just say it, she sang it. It's a praise song. Let's look at this um, passage this morning and see what Mary's song has to say to us about who God is, what God does, and then how to receive this king. So first, let's look at what Mary sings about who God is. In other words, what does she tell us about the attributes of God, God's character? Look at verses 49 and 50. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary is reflecting on the message that the angel Gabriel has shared with her, that she would be the mother of Jesus. And the first thing she does is sing about God's might and power. She refers to God as he who is mighty. Remember, when she heard the message of the angel, she was at first questioning and struggling with understanding how in the world she was going to be the mother of the promised Messiah, especially given the fact that she was a virgin. Do you remember what the angel said? Nothing is impossible for God. God can do whatever God wants to do. Yes, even a virgin birth. He's completely powerful. But what if Mary stopped there? What if God were only powerful? See, that wouldn't necessarily be very good news because a God who is only powerful could be a good God, but could also be a very bad God, capable of doing very bad things. You know the old saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. See, there's nothing necessarily praiseworthy about power. How many of you have sung praise songs to your circuit breaker? Have you ever written a hymn for a forest fire? No. If we only knew that God is powerful, we wouldn't necessarily sing about it. But Mary doesn't stop with God's power. She also sings, holy is his name. God is powerful and God is holy. What does it mean to say that God is holy? That's one of those very churchy words. For some of us, holy might have negative connotations. We, we think of people who are holier than thou, annoying people. But in scripture, holy means on one hand, when we, when we say that God is holy, on one hand, we mean that God is completely set apart. It means God is holy other. But it also means that God is completely pure and righteous and good. And so this sounds like good news, right? God isn't just powerful and mighty. He's also good. We don't have to worry about him doing evil things because that's not who God is. God is holy, and that means that his nature and character is good. So a sigh of relief. But what if Mary stopped there? What if she only sang about God's might and his holiness? What if she only told us about a God who is powerful and good? 
See, that sounds great at first until we really start to think about it. The fact that God is holy means he's good and and his goodness requires opposition to what is not good. Precisely because God is good, God does not tolerate evil. He never gets used to it. He's set against it. And so what does that mean for people like us, people who have gotten used to sin, people who aren't completely pure and righteous? See, a God who is mighty and holy, powerful and good, must oppose sin, and that means he must oppose it wherever it is found, out there, but also in here, in you, and in me. Well, thankfully, Mary keeps singing. She tells us more. She she doesn't stop with God's power and holiness. She also sings about God's mercy. Her song shows us that this God, who is only mighty and holy, is imaginary. The real God, the only true God, is mighty and holy and merciful. Merciful. One way to understand the word is in terms of God's kindness toward the afflicted, combined with a desire to help. Or as Dane Ortland puts it, it's about God's impulse, his most natural instinct to move towards sinners and sufferers, not away from them. See, God sees people who are broken and hurting, and he doesn't run away, he goes to them. The great theologian Karl Barth says this, God has mercy on us. He says yes to us. He will. He wills to be on our side, to be our God against all God, all odds. Indeed, against all odds, because we do not deserve this mercy. Because, as we rightly suppose, he should say no to us all. But he does not say no. He says yes. He is not against us. He is for us. This is God's mercy. Do you know this mercy, family? Have you experienced it? See, here is a God who is worthy of our praise. There's nothing praiseworthy about sheer power. I might respect an elephant, but I'm not going to worship it. I might marvel at Niagara Falls, but I don't give it my allegiance. And while a God whose nature combines power and goodness is actually worthy of our praise, if all we knew of God were his power and goodness, we'd probably be too busy running from him to ever worship him. But Mary's song shows us that the only real God, the only God who actually exists, is this God, mighty, holy, and merciful. See, this is why the Bible is so full of music, because this God is worthy of our best songs. He's worth celebrating. That's why Mary sings this first Christmas carol. She praises God for who he is. Mary also sings about what God does. And what we see here is that what God does is both incredibly personal and incredibly public. Let's look at both sides of that. First, it's personal. Listen again to how Mary starts her song. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Do you hear how personal that is? My soul, my spirit, me, me. See, she's receiving the good news about Jesus in a very personal way. She understands that it's a message very much for her. 
It means blessing for her. It's a message that moves her to the depths of her being. She show, God shows her, her mercy and that changes her at the core of who she is. This shows us something about how the good news about Jesus is meant to be received as good news for us that really moves us, that really changes us. Are we able to say with the Apostle Paul, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me? Or do we hear the message about Jesus and think, oh yeah, that. See, that's always the struggle for me around Christmas time. There are so many distractions, parades and peppermint mochas and shopping and all the Christmas catchphrases like joy to the world and peace on earth, but, but ripped completely out of their context within the Bible's story. Sometimes it's hard to really hear the good news about Jesus through all of that. It's hard to remember why Christmas is such good news and, and such good news for me. See, during Advent, my tendency is to speed up when I should be slowing down, to wait and to look and to listen. I encourage you to take time to be with God in the coming days and weeks as we move toward Christmas and to remember how this message about Jesus is for you in very personal ways. To remember the great things this God has done for you personally. And then if you can, to praise him and to praise him from your depths to let your soul glorify him, to let your spirit rejoice. The Christmas message is incredibly personal. He has done great things, not only for Mary, not only for Paul, but also for you and for me. What God has done is incredibly personal, but it's not private. The message of Christmas is a public message. The good news about Jesus is not just another self-help philosophy. It's not merely a matter of getting your heart right with God. The gospel isn't just about hope for individuals. It's about hope for the whole world. You know, all of the great Christmas carols get this right. We don't sing, joy to me, the Lord is come. Let my heart receive seven essential steps for a better prayer life. We sing, joy to the world. Let earth receive her king. That hymn doesn't say, he's come to make the blessings flow in my quiet times. It says, he's come to make the blessing flow far as the curse is found. And that's far. The curse is in me, but it's also out there in the world. The past two years have reminded us in unsettling ways that the curse isn't limited to human hearts, but is very much in social structures and in politics and even in nature itself. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We know this. And the message of Christmas is that as Jesus Christ, God has come to fix it all and to make it right. Look at this song that Mary sings. She's talking about things happening in history. See, this is public truth. God has brought down rulers. He has helped his people. He's working to fulfill the promises he made to Abraham. If that's true, it's true for everyone. It's true for the whole world. It's just as important for your next door neighbor to know it and receive it as it is for you to believe it. It's not something that we can keep to ourselves, family. That's part of why Mary has to sing about it. She knows that the news must be shared with others. 
See, the message of Christmas, it's incredibly personal. God has done great things for you, but it's not private. God has done great things for the whole world. So we've looked at some of what Mary's song tells us about who God is and what God does. What does her song tell us about how to receive this king? You know, there's a theme that runs throughout the song, and it shows us the key to receiving this king of Christmas. The theme is humility. Verse 48 says that God has looked on the humble state of his servant. Verses 51 through 53 say, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. What is this saying? Well, it's really saying one thing, that receiving God's grace requires humility. You know, this is a consistent theme of scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As a congregation, we've spent a lot of time um, going deep on humility, but let's reflect on one image about humility that Mary's song suggests. Her song puts side by side the exaltation of the humble and the filling of the hungry. See, this suggests that to be humble is to be hungry. Think about that. What happens when we're hungry? When we're hungry, we start to become aware of our neediness. When we're hungry, we know we don't have enough. We know that we're insufficient. When we're hungry, we're acutely aware that we do not sustain ourselves. And when we get hungry enough, it becomes clear that without food, we'll die. Our hunger reminds us that we are completely dependent on food for our life and our nourishment. We need sustenance from a source that is not us. And what is true physically is true spiritually. The way to receive the God of Christmas is to come to him hungry. Which means not denying your hunger and it means resisting the idea that we have what it takes to feed ourselves. You know, that's actually kind of an attractive idea, isn't it? That we basically have what it takes to make our lives work well. We think that if we do the necessary tweaking, make the right New Year's resolutions, get the right habits in place, manage our finances a little better, get, get a new app, well then, we'll be fed. We'll have what we need. Our lives will go the way we want them to go. We'll be the people we want to be. And so, we're consistently, constantly trying to feed ourselves. But Mary's song invites us to slow down and to ask if any of that actually satisfies. Does it really meet our deep need for nourishment? Or are there ways of, are these just ways of covering over our true hunger? Are they like some kind of appetite suppressant? See, to be humble is to be hungry. And it's to be honest about our hunger. And it's to embrace the fact that we must be fed by someone else. To be hum humble is to be desperate for food. What food? What food is there for us? In a couple of weeks, we'll read about Jesus' birth. Luke tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You remember what that word means, Bethlehem? means house of bread. 
Jesus was born in the house of bread. And Luke tells us that when Jesus was born in the house of bread, Mary and Joseph wrapped him in swaddling clothes and they laid him in a manger. When you and I hear the word manger, we think baby Jesus. But when people in the first century Bethlehem heard the word manger, you know what they thought? They thought food. And not any kind of food. What kind of food? See, not not food for the high and mighty. When they heard manger, it wasn't images of kings and queens feasting in luxury that came to mind. It wasn't big Thanksgiving or Christmas feasts with turkey and ham and stuffing and sweet potatoes. What kind of food? Food for barnyard animals. A manger is a feeding trough. It's where you put the food for animals so that they can come in and have the nourishment they need to survive. When people in the first century heard the word manger, their thoughts went to this kind of meal, a meal for sheep and oxen, not a meal for the high and mighty, a meal for the low and the least. Barnyard animals are humble. If there's not food in the manger, you know what? They don't evolve into mighty hunters and gatherers. If there's no food in the manger, a sheep doesn't go out and start stalking squirrels. An oxen doesn't morph into an apex predator. Without food in the manger, these creatures die. So Jesus is born in the house of bread, and he's laid in a feeding trough. God is telling us something, family, through these historical facts. What is it? Jesus came into the world to be food. We see this at the beginning of his life. And we see it at the end when he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. And this cup is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. When Mary says that God fills the hungry with good things, she means the best thing. God fills the hungry with Jesus, which is to say God fills the hungry with himself. But only if you're humble, which means only if you're hungry and honest about your hunger and longing to be fed by this mighty and holy and merciful king. Family, he can't feed you if you're already full. And so come to him empty. Come to him with your need. Come and receive Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.